0: Hello everyone, and thanks for joining us here at Cloud Wars Live, where we explore customer-centric business innovation by speaking with the dynamic companies and people making and using the modern technologies that profoundly change how the world works, lives, plays, learns, and dreams. Our guest on today's show is serial entrepreneur, scientist, scholar, and philosopher, Joe Stefura, whose latest launch is Thrive, Inc., an interactive platform that helps optimize performance and outcomes by helping people understand how and when they're at their best, Joe. Welcome to CloudWorlds Live, and thanks for joining us.
1: Oh, thanks for having me, Bob. It's great to be here, and uh, I'm delighted to spend the time here with you today talking about my favorite subject.
0: Joe, I know that folks are going to want to hear about what you're doing with Thrive, but to help everybody understand that in the right perspective. You know, would you please set the stage for us a little? Tell us about your background. You know, from NASA and other places, and how you've woven multiple disciplines and experiences into, you know, your latest entrepreneurial adventure.
1: I'll try to be brief. Uh, when you live a long time and lucky, uh, fortunate enough to do the things uh, <laughs> that I've been able to stumble into, you know, there's a lot to talk about. So. Uh, <laughs> You know, um, it started a long time ago when I was studying digital electronics and engineering in the 70s, and there wasn't a lot of interest in it at that time. It wasn't a main industry. Uh, Electronics was just coming onto the scene. So studying that was sort of an oddball trait, believe it or not, at that time. And uh, what happened uh, to me was, fortunately, NASA needed people to staff its manned spaceflight network, and they were allowing people who hadn't finished college yet to take tests and see if they could qualify for a position and i did that so uh, i was fortunate enough to qualify and i worked for nasa through a series of great projects uh, that w- could take up a podcast in themselves each one of them uh skylab famous manned space lab that's now been carried on by the international space station and uh then moved on to the the most incredible device ever put in the sky at the time, ATS-6, which laid the groundwork for everything from uh, high-quality satellite television to GPS systems to all sorts of data relay systems that allow banking institutions to do the kind of things they do, et cetera. I moved from there back to Pittsburgh and joined the company that made the equipment that I was using at NASA called Contravis Gertz. Worked for them for a little while and moved into the newspaper business. Um, well,
0: of course. It's a straight line, right? <laughs> right. A straight line in the
1: newspaper business. Uh, you know, and I-, I talked to people. It was a technology lily pad that I hopped across, you know, because <laughs> the uh, publishing industry was uh, rapidly adopting the same computer systems that I had been using at NASA. So I dropped, jumped into a, a well-known area for me and a brand new area for them. So I was lucky to be the one-eyed uh, man in the land of the blind. Uh, uh, we, we had a—it was a privately owned newspaper business in the '80s, which were very lucrative businesses at those times. You know, they had taken huge technological advantages and had no price pressures, so their margins grew. And the group I worked with invested heavily in laser typesetter setting and networking and then ultimately desktop publishing which laid the foundation for my i guess my big idea which was using digital photography in the workflow system of a production commercial printing plant i couldn't get anyone uh, in that area the the newspaper wasn't interested in investing in that kind of thing so i came to pittsburgh and found an advertising agency that backed me with about half a million bucks and we bought cameras, uh, actually converted PAL video cameras, and then started to really take advantage of the growing networking capabilities. You know, Ethernet was winning then. Novell was yeah. still around, but was fading away. But we were going from ten, you know, one megabit to ten megabit to hundred megabit to one gigabit. It seemed like every six months, you know. So yeah, it was really exciting to see what you could do. So we tied uh, the advertising agency. Uh, invested we did very well with service star true value we're able to triple the amount of shots we can do in a day plus eliminate all chemicals films So it was a really wow. a complete digital transformation of a workflow kind of stunning really to see because you really learn that not only are things added to the economic force uh, things are deducted you know you you subtract things as kodak find out very painfully yes w- when these changes happen with so with that uh, company in place uh, something came back from my NASA days, which was DARPAnet back then and became the Ethernet as it wandered into the public domain. We started a division of our organization because fundamentally the skill sets were the same. The media is all that changed. You know, uh-huh. these were graphic designers and communicators and people who had knew how to build media vehicles. And, and this was just another one. So we, we moved over to that and in really short order, within about 18 months had. Been done websites for almost every significant company in Pittsburgh at the time: uh, Alcoa, Federated Investors, Mellon Bank at the time before BNY Mellon, PNC, and started to look outside of the area for some interest, and ran into a group in California, Silicon uh, out of Silicon Valley, called US Web, that huh. was executing a roll-up and. They come out, saw our company, really liked it, and within 10 months had bought the group. So we spent some time with those guys. Had a, an event I had never been f- uh, through before, which was going public. That gave us a chance to see how you could spread the wealth throughout the organization. Everyone in our company had shares and, and could take advantage of our success. Yeah. And, and that was a great ride until it wasn't. The ride ride <laughs> 2000, 2001. <laughs> You know, the reality of a lot of the, the business models came home, you know, you, you find out uh, through these tumultuous times when it seems like everything would work, that not everything works. And as those things come to light, what emerges out of the end is what we've seen over the last 10 years, uh, 15 years, which is a powerful Internet that is still taking over almost everything that we do. Only in, I'd say, much more professional and defined manners. My time from 2000, when I left US Web up to the current, has been specifically spent in AI type technologies, a text to speech company. I worked for about a year and a half with a, a speech recognition company, all those things, done computer-like things that were human domains in the past, you know, so that's what I started to think of as AI. What What can this computer do that people do and what could it do cheaper and better? That was the main push of AI was to understand, you know, how you can automate and accelerate things. I would say about 2010, I started to think differently about the combination of technology and people and morph my thinking about AI into something that fits more into ancillary or auxiliary intelligence and thought about the way that the human machine partnership could really achieve new heights in this century and could approach some of the intractable problems of the past are being worked on but still have a, a significant amount of goat in this a ways to go in this century until everybody thinks we have them solved. So that was the genesis of Thrive. The idea was let's take some modern technologies, cross communications, artificial intelligence and cloud-based computing. And build a place where people could have conversations about things that are important to them in their lives. And they have the advantage of the technology to assist them as they encounter the things that modern neuroscience and behavioral economics have taught us get in the way of us making good decisions and having clear perspectives. We like to yeah. say at Thrive, our our mission is to give people better days. And the way to get those better days, we think, is to provide higher understanding of your situation, the options that are available, and the decisions that you need decisions and actions that you need to make to achieve the uh, the goals that you desire.
0: Joe, you've sort of, well, it sounds like, you know, your journey's taking it from outer space to inner space.
1: <laughs> I never thought about it that way, Bob. but uh, <laughs> I, I think you're absolutely right is, you know, just like Richard Feynman said in one of his lectures, there's a lot of room at the bottom.
0: Um, <laughs> yeah.
1: As I spent a lot of time, yeah. you know, early on, as you said, looking at uh, out in the space, you know, I spent hours and nights, you know, staring into the skies. And you're right, uh, it's much more interesting to me now to stare inside of myself and and wonder why I, you know I would make this decision or that decision or try to understand the individual motivations in the moment that lead people to do things that are somewhat counterproductive, and then on the positive side you know what are the things that allow certain people to just be able to put the pieces into place so effectively you know and accomplish and achieve what it is they set out to do. And a lot of cases you find that these are people that have consciously or subconsciously adapted their their behaviors and habits to counteract the things that could get in their way
0: uh, joe i think the one thing about thrive from when you and i had first talked about it and you know as thrive has evolved there it was that basic thing that you know i think appeals to everybody which is that as you put it a minute ago understanding ourselves better so that we know you know when is the time to sort of kick it into high gear and when's the time to back off a little bit. So, I mean, it sounds so simple, but why was there a need for Thrive when this seems like something that everybody would want to do and already have taken care of?
1: That's a great point. And I tell people sometimes when they ask what we do and and, uh, the better day seems a little bit too pithy that we spend a lot of time learning how to help people do the things that they know they should do but don't you know, and that yeah. I found that fascinating too. Uh, because sometimes you know, the reason that they don't is actually a subconscious block or belief. For example, we worked with a client in, in engineering heavy, high level nuclear engineering, and uh, they had been running a program for over two years, really, that was designed fundamentally to help them improve their engineering efforts, shorten schedules and be safer. But interestingly enough, that they weren't getting good data. And the first thing we did when the company gave us a chance to interact with the individuals that thrive was find out none of them believed that this program provided them any benefit.
0: Uh, they, yeah. they
1: believed that it w- was strictly an exercise to fill out a company's compliance or reporting requirements. So even though that's certainly important, it wasn't important at the engineering level. They didn't understand how that helped them do their job better. What we really found to break through that was really something that was available and anyone could have found it, but they just didn't pay attention or connect the dots. When we reminded these individuals that the people who put these programs together were just like them. They were engineers that were trying to do better jobs. They were engineers that were trying to meet schedules. They were engineers that were trying to be safer. That moved the needle bob in one month from 0% of the engineers who believed that this program was beneficial to them to 91%. Wow.
0: In In a month?
1: In a month. And it was just that one major blocker had built such a resistance to the idea that everybody Nobody saw the self-benefit, and it does get down to a fundamental theory of, of intentions to actions and what can get in the way of someone's intentions. Like you said, we were talking about earlier the things that we know we should do, and the fact that they don't do it. And at the simplest level, we believe in workplaces and even in, even in some health considerations we work with, it's a combination of confidence and self-interest. There has to be a confidence that the individual has that they can perform the action correctly and confidently. And on the other side, that there does have to be a sufficient sense that if I do this, my life will be better. Uh, the situation will be improved or my goal will be closer to being achieved. So, we spend a lot of time looking for those blockers, we call them, between what people say they will do or what they'll train to do and what they act, the actions they actually take in the moment.
0: Joe, I, I hope you forgive me. I know when when we had lunch recently, I mentioned this quick anecdote to you, but there, there, there's a point to it, I promise. So, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago, I was working in a media company and a Pretty successful publisher there from the magazines said, Hey, I've been watching on television now. There's all these evening magazine shows now where they take the standard 30 minute format instead of being chopped up by lots of little individual news segments. They say, We're going to talk about one thing for 30 minutes, a big topic. So he said, I want to do one of these for the tech industry. And he started doing some focus groups around the country and he had done four or five and he was going to do one in New York. And he popped his head in my office and he said, Hey, I'm having a little trouble figuring out, you know, what, what the feedback is on these things. Would you come to the focus group tonight? So I said, sure. And I'm sitting in there as things starts, I'm watching, he's asking them 30 minutes or 60, black and white or color, beta VHS, you know, commercial at the end or middle and all these things. And I wrote down a note and I handed it to somebody who took it in the room and gave him the note. And he looked at it and he read it and he asked the question to the focus group. He said, well, any of you watch this? And they all said, no. And uh, he said, why didn't you tell me? and they said you didn't ask so (laughs) we have these things so often and you know when you were talking about blockers and very often it is i mean the guy didn't want to create a a product that nobody cared about but the blocker in his head was i see that there's some success over here in some dimension i'm going to take that idea and put it here and he was just assuming that you know certain things that were not so and i think joe from some of what you've talked to me about thrive and some of what i've read about it it is one of those things that help clear out some of that fog or fuzz or disinformation or purely wrong information between us and what we really want to achieve and a feedback loop right that allows people to see more clearly here's where i am here's what i want to do here's my self-interest and this device, this feedback loop is going to help me be more on the ball, more of the time and more in sync with what I really want to achieve. Is that a fair assessment?
1: Yes, I think it is. And, and you know, one of the things that, that feedback drives within our clients is self-awareness, increased self-awareness. And awareness that we're looking for is, frankly, context. Because, you know, like you said, when you see an idea and you transplant it to a different spot, It's not the same because the context is different. So at that point, now you have an integration, not just a movement. It's not like putting something on a shelf. These things interact and they live together. So understanding the context of the the situation really for us is almost a starting point for whenever we start working with our clients to do the things that, they look for us to do, which is you know pretty traditional stuff, improve sales, increase compliance, increase customer satisfaction, assess customer satisfaction and see what will make them happier. So when you take a look at any of those activities, the first thing you have to understand is the context that those individuals are living in so that you begin to give an idea of what it is that would make their life better. You know, if the guy's in a, in a context of falling off of a cliff, then a rope is the most important thing in the world to him. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, but, but, but if he's sitting in a restaurant, it doesn't help him, right? I mean, <laughs> so, so uh, uh, yeah. that's kind of a crude representation, but you get the ideas that, if, yeah. that just like the tools, like the rope, we have cognitive of tools and abilities, and knowing which tools to pull out at the right time, is really important. It goes into uh, something we adhere to pretty closely and have really for the uh, almost half a decade we've really been looking at that is the idea of mental models and uh, as a, how you set a perspective and understanding of the situation. Charlie Munger is probably most famous for promoting these things. I, he's written some publications, and he talks about them quite often in his speeches. And he views his mental models like his Swiss army knife. He, when he sees himself in a situation, he's gotten to the point where his first habit is to try to match a mental model to that context, to that problem set that gives him the best shot of understanding what the situation is, what the options are, and how yeah. he, um,
0: Joe, you know the mental models, the types of thing you're talking about, you know, and and we we, we laughed a little bit about your trek from outer space to inner space. But I was thinking, uh, as you're describing these mental models, and again, I hope that most people feel, you know, every day I want to get up, I want to have a good day, I want to have more good moments, I want to understand the ways of thinking and the ways of behaving that are going to. Optimize my chances of having that really good day for me and everything I do. But I thought of something that you know, in my time at Oracle, and uh, I had a chance to spend quite a bit of time with Larry Ellison, who's one of the most remarkable people, uh, Mm -hmm. perhaps the most remarkable person I've ever met. And his range of understanding and intellect and exploration to all sorts of things is remarkable. And he really loved to study the human brain and you know why people do, why we do what we do. (laughs) One time he said. Uh, He said, I I don't know that everybody understands. He said, the primary function of the human brain is deception. And he said, the primary (laughs) target of that deception is ourselves. Right. And now say that that's partly right even. Uh, So it's not just that we go into it with a blank slate and not fully knowing what are these combinations, things we have to put together to get these idealized outcomes. But we almost start with, you know, if this self-deception is also in the mix there joe then it's even yet more difficult to get to that idealized state
1: that's right the idea around the mental models again is to do something that none of us likes to believe we really need to learn how to do better weirdly enough which is thinking and the the paradox is that you know the more education you have the less you think you need to really understand critical thinking Ah. uh and i see no correlation there (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. No correlation, honestly. I mean, um, a, a, academic learning is academic learning, but being self-aware and integrating important facts into your models. Because as you said, Bob, we don't start with a blank slate. We're always anchored. We're always anchored to our previous states. Yeah, We are a state machine as we go through life and our state changes due to inputs and outputs and events just like any a finite state model, which is fundamentally why we've built Thrive as a finite state model, so that it could create a mirror-like interaction with a human being. That idea of, of uh, being anchored means that all you know and all your opinions are rooted in things that have happened to you previously and the experiences that you've had there. And that's what can make decision-making so difficult because as, as Mr. Ellison said, we like to deceive ourselves, uh, so we'll go through the easy way of, of taking a look at something and saying, wow, this looks kind of like this, so I'm just going to do this over <laughs> here and everything will be fine uh-huh. with no consideration of critical thinking. And by that, I mean, you know, discovery of ground truths, truce, uh, second-order thinking. You know, th- these are things that are well understood in areas like philosophy and some of those areas but they're really becoming more and more important as fundamental tools so that we can do things like maintaining an open mindset long enough so that you have all the facts that you need for the next decision, knowing how to converge down into you know, a rational, valid solution, so validating assumptions. Those kind of things are really hard to teach in a classroom setting, but they're relatively easy to insert to an individual over time if they'll involve themselves in an ongoing interval learning process, for example, Mm -hmm. if they'll just Mm -hmm. touch it now and then you gain a little bit, all the time, there's a, a cognitive principle. One of well, actually the first cognitive psychological principle was the eberhaus curve, created by Hermann eberhaus Like guys, scientists had to do back in the days for about 25 years. You know, he would learn five words, like on uh, ten words on Monday, and then on Friday, see how many remembered, then and see how many <laughs> remembered on the following Friday, and and he developed a decline a curve of how yeah. quickly we lose information. When you do that yeah. for 35 years, you get. <laughs> That's <laughs> a so pretty acute insight. <laughs> uh, That's only, a little scary. <laughs> well, I tell you what, I met a real-life version of that. Excuse my non sequitur here. You can pull this out if you want. But there was a, when I lived in Barstow, California, and I worked a lot at night, so I spent a lot of time roaming around. And one of the individuals that I met out there was the world's leading observer of variable stars. Wow. Uh, Variable stars are stars that have a magnitude that fluctuates over time, Uh typically and periodically. So uh, this individual had sat in the desert for 40 years, went out every single night, got behind a telescope, which was not glamorous. This was a plywood box and a hand grind mirror, you know. But it was good enough and he had reams of books and he'd look at the same stars and go, oh, that one's a little brighter. That one's a little dimmer. And he had decades of that. So he's the only person I could compare to Eberhaus that I've met in person uh, <laughs> who was so singularly focused and, and spent so wow. much of their life basically learning one thing really, really well.
0: Wow. Joe, let me ask now what you were just describing, but you know, the finite states and so on like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, a few minutes ago, you had said that one of the ways that one of the various ways that Thrives can help a company is increase sales, compliance, customer satisfaction. I think you said. So, say, mm-hmm. you know, I'm in a very competitive business and I need to help my sales organization get more competitive, be more successful. I come to you, you know, in a fairly simple way. How can you help the sales team be more successful? What we've been doing with quite a few groups is
1: using the platform to assess all the way through to the customer. And what we mean by that is we start a conversation back at the selling side of what the selling proposition is. And we follow that through, in most cases, honestly, to the reseller. And then we see the reseller slightly reshaping that proposition in a way where it finally hits the customer. And then we see the customer receiving that information that's a little bit different than what the individual had. Thought they launched from the organization. Okay. So what we do is align those that thinking and language, and at times point out that what seems to be very well understood at the shippers, the manufacturing side or the production side, is really not understood at all by the customer because it's been distorted through the channels and through the expectations of other individuals uh, involved. The se- the reseller, in some cases, these products require maintenance and support of specialists. Those folks all come into play. What we really do with our customers is help them understand what people like and uh, about their product, what they dislike about their product, and how they're really seeing their product and what's important to them, as opposed to the the individual who's creating it, which is often quite quite a bit of difference early <laughs> on. You know, <laughs> what, what 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 a inventor thinks they're providing to society often turns out to be quite different. You know, and there's yeah. Tons of historical precedents on people that thought they were doing one thing and wound up doing something else. Um, Well,
0: Joe, and you know, that thing of what you said early on about, you know, you help people understand themselves better and then the more people are able to do that, and, you know, there's a cliche here, but stay on task, be tied to, you know, what the overall goal is, those sorts of things. I was thinking of that you know, whether you see it as a bumper stick or a t-shirt sometimes, you know, sort of the antithesis of it. But I think too many people are caught up in this situation where the solution is the beatings will continue until morale improves. Yep. Um, Right. There's a better way. Right, Joe, please.
1: Yeah, there's a better way for sure, you know, because we really see, you know, one of the things Gallup has been running for a long time is engagement surveys across companies, and they're almost always 30 percent Been 30 percent in the U.S. for a long time. So they're really, you know, they're telling you who's engaged, but what they're really not measuring there is what they're engaged in. Most importantly, why are, why are 70% disengaged? What's missing out of an environment or context that lets an individual feel like they're doing something with meaning and purpose? You know, I believe that meaning and purpose have been obscured often in modern business models. And one of the things that we really hope that Thrive can do is provide a more clarity and frankly more sunshine all through businesses organizations to the customer level so there's a high higher level of trust between uh, providers and and consumers i think that that within the individual basis the important thing for them is to feel that they're connected to helping that customer everyone in the company has to feel that they're helping someone for a company to actually achieve the highest level of operation. And we know that that's because we like to call it thrive. The super emotion gratitude is one of the prime drivers that will get an individual to continually repeat an action. If people, if they understand that people are grateful that they're repeating that action. So connecting that customer gratitude back through our feedback that originally starts with us, Sending out things that people feel look like surveys a, a little bit up front. We hope ours are a little more fun and entertaining to try to <laughs> color them up. But, you know, regardless, we're building a baseline of understanding, setting up the context and seeing if we can't dig out what it is that's making people unhappy within the organization. We've seen things like Semmelweis effect, another cognitive bias we deal with, which fundamentally means that you're making today's decisions based on yesterday's facts.
0: Yeah. We've seen
1: that pop up in a lot of companies, you know, where they get very comfortable. And often the weird thing is that the company can be achieving pretty good quarterly results at that point, but the underpinnings are already starting to erode because someone else out there has something that's a little better, maybe a little cheaper, and is starting to get a little more interesting. And they're going to suck that business out of their channel pretty quick if they don't have a way of anticipating that. Self-cannibalization, we know through the IT businesses, companies, Bob, that you've seen that have been willing to do it, survive. And yeah. companies you've seen have, that haven't done it, you know, I'll name most pro- prominent in my life was probably DEC, the Digital Equipment yes. Corporation, you know, just missed the boat entirely and didn't see the change whatsoever. Kodak also was curiously blind. And I think... Maybe locked in by something we call loss aversion, too. You've got a big investment into something you, you want to believe it's really working. So you'll tell yourself it's working for a
0: long time after
1: it's <laughs> stopped working. <laughs>
0: yeah. 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 What do you mean I'm dead? I'm standing right here in front of you. Yeah. yeah. And that, uh, that's the
1: kind of thing that, that are the biases that we're really not well-equipped as human beings to recognize those things. So part of what we do with Thrive when we say we're ancillary auxiliary Intelligence is to provide cues to people to to be aware of when, when an anchoring problem may be distorting their decisions on what something should cost or how long something should take. When a Semmelweis effect is maybe directing them to think about things that aren't relevant in their customers' minds today and to help people understand that respect is a, a lubricant to get communication so that companies can stop worrying about breaking down silos and start understanding why they form in the first place and just getting just ensuring they don't yeah so these are the kind of things modern tools do that I'd say legacy lagging indicator driven tools don't do when we say we're leading indicator tools we mean that we start at the thought by understanding what people are thinking and from there knowing the context and knowing the possibilities, we have a pretty good idea of being able to tell you what the probability of the desired actions are.
0: Joe, I love that. And uh, I got to say, you know, it's a little bit of ancient history here I'm going to get into, but you mentioned the company Digital Equipment Corporation, right? Mm -hmm. And they were all of a sudden found themselves strangers in a strange land, right? They were outgunned, behind the times, you know, all those things. What I find, and you know, hey, that's, that's happened to a lot of companies, but what I've always found most striking about the Digital Equipment Corp example was they had been the disruptor just a handful of years before, right? When they came in with the yeah. mini computer and totally tipped IBM's world upside down, you know, something that everybody said couldn't be done. So they had it very much in their initial DNA. To be the disruptor, to look at things as they were and say, no, we're going to shift it. Yet, all those things you've talked about, what do you call them? The anchor problems or anchoring problems? Yeah, anchoring,
1: problems? loss aversion, anchoring, Yeah. You know.
0: Yeah, they felt, okay, now we're in a new world with new rules and we're on top and this is how it's going to be. And they didn't see that, no, what they did was help trigger this cascading, ongoing series of disruptions where mm-hmm. nothing stays the same everything's right. going to be moving all the time. And if you're not changing yourself dramatically, somebody's going to do to you what you were uh, smart enough and clever enough and aggressive enough to do to somebody else. So, And it can't just be that they thought, well, hey, we'll have fun for 10 years, and then we're going to get blown up, and there's nothing we can do about it. There were, there had to be a fair amount of delusion. In
1: yeah. I think there's no doubt about that, you know, because to your point, even early in my career at NASA, Bob, we were putting in deck PDP 20s, 44s, 70s, and taking out Univacs and and IBM machines, you know, that was the switch. You're right. They, They blew right in there. Why? They had a better, more flexible machine, a higher power and a smaller footprint. You know, that disrupting technology is interesting because you get someone who really draws a bead on something like a mini computer market. You can really start to get a pretty good leg up as IBM and the rest of those guys did feed into that market pretty quickly. We really don't see ourselves, again, a Thrive, you know, we don't see ourselves disrupting technology. We see ourselves a disruptive technology, disrupting, frankly, a $500 billion U.S. spend in coaching, consulting, and training. Those are services that are needed and have been needed for companies to do all kinds of things uh, transitions and change management and different types of uh, Six Sigma, et cetera. You know, consultants come in and made your companies better. But in today's knowledge companies, we're driving off of the belief that most of the intelligence that's needed for that company to work better already exists in the four walls. It's just not connected and configured properly. And that's what we work with companies is to have them, ha- allow them to understand what they really know evaluate what they should forget, keep what they should keep and put it into a program that reinforces that concept all through the organization and increasingly through what we call the ecosystem, Yeah, which is a little different than a value chain. I think in a sense where uh, value chains tend to kind of stay in place for a while where ecosystems can almost turn on and off in relatively short periods when certain resources are needed by an ecosystem partner you, you can integrate them into an api into your ecosystem and get the advantages of that and when you don't need them anymore or something else is different you can you can turn that off exactly what parts of the 500 billion dollar market we're going to disrupt i don't know you know i, I think optimistically there's 40 percent of it or so that's in the capabilities that we have now in the sense that people really don't want consultants trainers or coaches but they want our outcomes They want people to behave a certain way and to make decisions in a certain sense. And that's really what they want. So just like back when the digital, I was explaining to people, you don't want the chemistry in the film. What you want is this picture on new stock as beautiful as you can, economically as you can. So companies, you don't really want more people to manage. You don't really want to go through another quasi hiring project. What you really want to do is get maximum input and engagement from the individuals within your organization. I say four walls, which is another indication of my age, but it could be a zillion walls or no walls yes. or no nowadays. The fact is you're connected. Interesting companies are connected cognitively now more than they are physically, right? That also shifts the importance to what people think about the organization and what they imagine the organization is supposed to do is much more ephemeral. Than it, than it was when you walked into a place in a U.S. steel jacket through a U.S. steel gate it, with U.S. steel signals all over the place or Alcoa signals all over the yeah. place or even or- Oracle or Microsoft and signals all over the place. Yeah. You don't have those kind of in-your-face symbolism. And symbols are ancient. You know, they're, they're, they're older than language. So they are Super impactful. I think it's it's a little bit of a gap right now for organizations to understand exactly how to get that same level of impact. Being a not in your face company, because the companies that have grown that way recently, like Facebook, they are in your face company. Um, yeah. Um, but mo- yeah, but I- most most aren't anymore, and um, they they tend to operate differently. So. To build that brand within your organization is harder than ever, I think.
0: Joe, I want to ask you one last question. But before I do, please, anybody's interested, where can folks find out more about Thrive?
1: Well, you can uh, learn just about everything about us at our website at www.gothrive.io. That's .io.
0: And Go Thrive.
1: Go Thrive. All right. Um, as a website, we have white papers on there. We have a little demo and we have uh, a couple case studies to give you an idea of what we do in, in practical terms.
0: All right, Joe. So for a closer, just a, a simple, lightweight question here. So AI, are you an optimist? Yes. Because I know you've seen the dark sides of it as well. What, what gives you cause for optimism?
1: Well, you know, it's my nature. I, I always, always look on the bright side, but I also read plenty of Karl Popper. So uh, I, know the, I know the dangers of ignoring the the dangers. I think that while there are definitely legitimate concerns over the overreach of AI and people doing bad things with it, that's not anything particularly new. I think that we have some time here based off the capabilities and and, and what's available now that we can still drive to make AI a human-centric technology, not a human-displacing technology. I don't believe that Computers are going to be making any big decisions anytime soon, but I love the fact that AI can help them make a lot of little decisions more accurately, repetitive tasks, you know, no matter how smart you are, it detaches from intelligence. That's why surgeons and and pilots use checklists, right? I mean, they do this thousands and thousands of times, but they, They've identified the human flaw in those repetitive habits when you're not sure if you really did it today or you did it yesterday when you try to use memory. So I think AI has a lot of places where it can be completely beneficial. I think if we stay diligent and we develop the right kind of tools, once again, we can prevent it from killing us, taking us over or eliminating every single job to where we're all sitting around wondering who's making the money and who's spending anything.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Exactly. Well, Joe, along with that, I loved your thoughts about you know some corollaries or alternatives to what AI means. You talked about ancillary intelligence and auxiliary intelligence, and I think that that ties right in there with your optimistic answer. And I, I share that outlook with you. And but, Joe, overall, thank you so much. This has really been a great conversation, and and thanks a million for your time and insights.
1: Well, thanks again for inviting me, Bob. It's great to uh, talk to you always, and uh, best of luck. Hope to talk to you soon.
0: Hey, and many thanks to all of you listeners for joining us here on Cloud Wars Live, where we explore the unfolding adventures of digital transformation and cloud computing, and how those are profoundly changing how we live, work, play, learn, and experience the world. I hope you'll join us for other episodes of Cloud Wars Live, and please share your feedback with me at bobevanspa at gmail.com. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.